This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. ISIS had plans to use mustard gas against American allies fighting them. That came out today from defense officials. Their source is a chemical weapons specialist who was captured by U.S. special forces in Iraq. So let's learn where the so-called Islamic State gets the money to carry out its operations. A company based in Colorado actually tracks this. IHS is in Englewood, south of Denver. Colm Strack joins us from London, where IHS has an office. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Colm, your most recent report finds that the Islamic State pulled in about $80 million a month towards the end of last year. Break it down for us. Where does that money come from? Yeah, so uh, this is an assessment that we made back in September last year, uh, which was based on some leaked financial documents, uh, which were leaked by the Islamic State uh, for Deir Azur province in Syria. Uh, From that, we've added a few other um, kind of information sources that we had, and we came up with this assessment that they'd made, you know, as you said, 80 million uh, US dollars a month. Now, that breaks down roughly as 43% from oil, um, 52% from tax and confiscation of property. And then the remainder was from a kind of variety of criminal activities like kidnap for ransom and a very small number of donations from uh, private individuals in the Gulf mainly. All right, let's start with oil. Where are they getting it from? Whom are they selling it to? Are you able to track that? Uh, yes, so they're producing oil in both Iraq and in Syria. Uh, in fields in mainly eastern Syria at the moment and south of Mosul. Um, Obviously, this has been affected since our last assessment by both U.S. and Russian airstrikes uh, on those production facilities and specifically on uh, the ability to transport that oil through tankers. Yeah, that's okay. Since 2014, several countries, including the U.S., started airstrikes against the Islamic State. And one of the goals was to restrict its ability to produce and smuggle oil and gas. Here's President Obama speaking shortly after the San Bernardino attacks. The two alleged shooters pledged allegiance, of course, to ISIS. In Iraq and Syria, airstrikes are taking out ISIL leaders heavy weapons, oil tankers, infrastructure. And since the attacks in Paris, our closest allies, including France, Germany, and the United Kingdom, have ramped up their contributions to our military campaign, which will help us accelerate our effort to destroy ISIL. So he's making reference there to stopping a key source of their revenue. Let's explore some of the others. So you mentioned taxes. How does, how does that work? Uh, so the Islamic State you know, operates as a state in the, the, the so-called caliphate. And what it does is it imposes a 20% uh, kind of standard tax on all economic activity. Um, that includes, you know, smuggling of antiquities. So they'll sell licenses to dig. They'll then charge tax on, on anything that's exported from the, uh, from the caliphate. And then uh, finally, you pointed to kidnapping and ransoms and donations. Is there more you can say about those sources of revenue and uh, whether they remain steady? Yeah, so these are the kind of sources of revenue that you traditionally expect to see from uh, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda. The difference between the Islamic State and a group like Al-Qaeda is that it makes most of its, or the the vast majority of its revenue from uh, other means like taxation and, and oil revenues. So even if we add up um, 
you know, these donations from private individuals, it's really negligible. Hmm. We mentioned the uh, the airstrikes and that they've had some effect. Uh, how is the Islamic State trying to make up for that lost revenue, uh, specifically when it comes to the movements or availability of oil and gas? Um, so we've seen some changes in, in how the oil is, is sold to local dealers. Um, so first, it's worth understanding that the, the Islamic State doesn't sell its oil or export its oil directly, but it will usually sell it at source uh, to a range of local dealers and smugglers, which then take it further. Um, most of it goes into local markets in Iraq and Syria, particularly in the caliphate, but some of it will be exported to, to other areas via these, uh, these private smugglers. Um, now, previously, they used to queue up at the production um, areas, but since those have been targeted by uh, by airstrikes, both by Russia and the and the US-led coalition, they've had to change their uh, their methods. So what they've done now to avoid these kind of queues of of tankers, which would make easy targets, is they give them they hand out tickets. So you'll go there as a smuggler, you'll receive a ticket with a time and a place to come back and pick up your oil. Um, and a new way of making money is to sell kind of jump the queue. Uh, vouchers, if you will, where you can pay a fixed fee and you can you can pick up um, oil right away. So that's just a new way of making additional funds. Fascinating. All right, we've talked about the revenue side. What does ISIS spend its money on? So most of it will go on just running the the day to day kind of state. Um, so they provide basic services like uh, water, electricity, um, phone networks, internet services, and the prices that they charge the, uh, the public in those areas that they control have gone up quite significantly in, the, in recent months. So for, all we can do is look at proxy indicators that tell us you know, how the Islamic State is doing financially. And what we've been seeing is tax hikes, um, the salaries of, of foreign fighters have been cut, uh, the cost of these basic services has gone up and they've been introducing new fees where they can, like these um, these jump the queue vouchers or uh, fees for anyone wanting to leave the caliphate. So it looks like the Islamic State is really struggling to balance its budget at the moment. You mentioned salaries. Do you have some sense of how much an ISIS fighter is paid and what the pay cut has been? So previously, it ranged, it, it ranged between 400 and 600 US dollars a month. Uh, depending on whether it was a local fighter, a foreign fighter, um, if they have families, they get additional benefits. And these have been cut by around 50%. And that's in light of some of the, the price hikes that ISIS is facing. What explains uh, those price hikes? Why are they paying more to exist? It's all about trying to balance the budget. So because they're earning less as a result of uh, these airstrikes on oil funding uh, and also the shrinking territory, um, by which you know they have less less uh, people to tax um, to keep up with their expenditure. They need to raise prices. They need to figure out new ways and become much more creative in how they raise revenue. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and it turns out that a company based in Colorado, that's IHS, tracks the revenue and spending of the terrorist group ISIS. We are speaking with Colm Strack from IHS's London office. And 
do me a favor, Colm. Describe the team you work on at IHS, which, which tracks this, and what sources you have for this information. You've mentioned so far that you know, le- leaked documents or declassified documents are, are one place you turn. Hmm. So uh, the team I work on specifically is called the IHS Conflict Monitor, uh, which monitors, as it says, the, the situation in Syria and Iraq, and particularly the Islamic State. Uh, we draw on a kind of uh, a wide infrastructure of information collection. So we'll take things from, uh, we'll monitor social media very widely, um, local media sources. We have a network of, of human sources in the country uh, and also some satellite imagery. And we'll combine all those to try and get our insights on, um, on what the Islamic State's doing. And how successful are you? That is, if you look back at your previous work, does it turn out to be pretty on target or is this something of a guessing game? It's always going to be a guessing game. Um, pre- our previous kind of forecasts uh, have, have been pretty good. There are always things that we get wrong and that we have to adjust as we go along. Um, but it's all about you know, making that assessment based on the limited information that is available and then adjusting that as you go along. And to what extent are conversations, if you know this, at the Pentagon about you know, the pure military approach... Uh, versus conversations about the economics of terrorism. Um, is that a very purposeful front in this battle? Um, so what you can do to hit their kind of sources of revenue is what we've been seeing so far. Oil revenue is the easiest one to target because um, it's usually outside of urban areas. You can stop the transport and the production of oil. Uh, and given that that makes up 43% of their overall revenue, you know, that's the, the easy target. And that's that has been having a big effect. If you want to go after their sources of tax revenue, it's much more difficult because it's, you know, to, to kind of target economic activity without having a direct impact on the civilian population. But this is a conversation that goes on at the Pentagon, the notion of the, the economic warfare aspect. Mm. Yes, I mean, that, that's that's the one aspect um, I think they're doing all they can immediately. Um, it is having, like I said, a, a significant impact from the proxy indicators that we've been monitoring. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you. Colm Strack, he's a senior analyst at IHS, which is based in Englewood, south of Denver. He joined us from the London office. And as he explained, he's on the conflict monitor team, which has tracked the finances of the so-called Islamic State. Just ahead, Denver clears a homeless camp from downtown. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Homeless camps near the ballpark in downtown Denver were cleared yesterday. Some homeless people cleared their own belongings. City crews stepped in when others refused to pack up. Officials had issued a warning Monday that people had 24 hours to clear their belongings from the area. CPR's Nathaniel Miner is covering this story. Hi, Nate. Hi, Ryan. So there were signs erected uh, earlier this week that uh, issued this warning. This is around Lawrence and Park Avenue in Denver. Why did the city target that area in particular? Well, there are a lot of homeless shelters and other services near there. So that's where many of these camps have popped up. Uh, The city says it became a health hazard. Uh, Here's Jesse Granger, a spokesman. Anytime you have, you know, human waste and refuse and all this stuff building up over the course of months, 
that poses a public health hazard, uh, and it was approaching becoming a crisis in that area. If you've driven through this neighborhood, you may have also had the experience of people crossing right in front of you, a moving car. And we heard from um, you know homeless people in the area that people do get hit. It's happened there in recent weeks. The encampment there started last summer. Granger said the camps were keeping other people from accessing services. Some women and children reported they didn't want to cross the area to get to the shelters themselves. So the city has tried to get people out of the area and into shelters for about six months, and it just wasn't working. So they took this step to actually say, please leave or we'll remove your belongings. And this effort by the city got a lot of attention over the weekend and on Monday when the city started notifying folks that they had to clear out. But nothing really happened until uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, What was the scene? So the area had cleared a bit when I was down there early yesterday morning, but it really didn't completely empty until later in the afternoon when city crews moved in. Workers showed up in orange sweatshirts and green work vests uh, to clear out the camps. Police were there to keep peace, and half a dozen protesters were there as well. The AP reported that it didn't appear any homeless people were actually around at that time. How does it fit in with what the city's doing to help people out of homelessness, you know, generally? So the city hopes people living here will move into one of the nearby shelters to get back on their feet. And there's actually plenty of empty beds at these shelters. Just across the street from the encampment, there were about 30 empty beds at the Denver Rescue Mission's Lawrence Street shelter. And across the street, Catholic Charities said they have empty beds, too. The city also recently started a program that will house 250 chronically homeless people, but there are many more than 250 people in that situation. Altogether, there are nearly 4,000 homeless people in Denver, so it's really just a drop in the bucket. But the mayor says it's part of a larger effort, a metro-wide campaign launched late last year that aims to increase awareness and understanding of the issue. That follows Denver's ambitious 2005 plan to, quote, end homelessness that city leaders now acknowledge didn't happen. What do homeless people and advocates for them say? We talked with a man who previously lived in this encampment, who went by the name of Sam, who said he doesn't want to go into a shelter because he thinks it's too dangerous. That's just one reason people choose not to go into shelters. We spoke with Kathy Alderman of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Some people don't want to go to shelters because they're in a relationship or a partnership and um, men and women's shelters are separated. Some people don't want to go into shelter because they have a pet and the pet's not allowed. These folks also have belongings that they're not often allowed to bring into shelters. And uh, many of them have um, are suffering from mental health issues, and sometimes a, a shelter situation can be extraordinarily traumatic for them. And so um, while there technically might be some beds available, that is not the solution. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Alderman also says this type of suite makes their work more difficult because people disperse and it's harder to connect them to services. And in a statement, the ACLU of Denver called the city's actions draconian in an attempt to hide impoverished people out of sight. So the city hopes that people who are living in these camps will move into shelters. What happens if they instead just move back into these blocks in a few days or weeks? So we spoke with the person living in the encampment, Marcus Parker, and he predicted that would actually happen. Kathy Alderman from the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless also thought that was a distinct possibility. She said people experiencing homelessness like to find a sense of community just like everyone else. Jesse Granger, the city spokesman, says ideally people will find shelter, as we said. But if folks come back to this area and start building their belongings up again and and encumber the sidewalks and and limit the uh, ability of folks in the neighborhood to move throughout the area, then, you know, they'll be met with police and possibly served a citation. And then if that continues, they could face an arrest. 
but that's not what we're going for. You know, that's that's kind of a last resort. This is likely not the end of the story. Nate, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Nathaniel Miner is a digital producer at CPR News. Find more of his reporting at CPRnews.org. Also yesterday, homeless housing and service organizations in Colorado learned they'd collectively get almost $24 million from the federal government. Most of that will go to the Denver area. There is wide agreement that Colorado's highway system is running out of money, but the question is how to fix that. In the second of two reports, CPR's Vic Vela looks at transportation funding proposals at the Capitol and possibly at the ballot box. Governor John Hickenlooper often touts Colorado as an attractive destination, citing the state's beauty, diverse economy, and low unemployment rate. But the governor acknowledges that comes with a cost. We are strangling in our own success. We've become this destination for millennials. Entrepreneurs are flocking here, starting businesses. And yet we are not investing into our transportation infrastructure and and other infrastructure the way we should be. That's something Andy Coco can relate to. She often drives in heavy congestion between Denver and Boulder, and she'd like to see the state focus on expanding mass transit services. We're going to have to turn a lot of attention towards road conditions in more thoughtful ways than just thinking about how can we handle this number of cars. But paying for things like regional bus routes and more highway lanes is a challenge. That's because the state is trying to maintain a 1950s-era highway system that was based on a 1980s population with 1990s money. How roads are funded in Colorado is a complicated business. The Colorado Department of Transportation receives state money when Colorado's personal income growth reaches 5%. That should translate into about $200 million for the next budget year. But state revenue has exceeded population growth and the rate of inflation. So the voter-approved Taxpayer Bill of Rights will trigger tax refunds, meaning less money for transportation funding. And future forecasts show this source of money for roads could disappear entirely. Democratic State Senator Pat Stedman sits on the legislature's Joint Budget Committee, He would love to change the way the state funds transportation, but that's difficult because Democrats control the House and Republicans control the Senate. That's going to be a pretty difficult conversation, and it's not clear that uh, if we were to reopen that law, we could find consensus about a different way to do it. CDOT only gets some of its revenue from the state budget. Most of its money, 61 percent, comes from state and federal gas taxes. But the state's gas tax, which is currently 22 cents per gallon, hasn't changed since 1992. You can't buy a car today for what you paid in 1992. You can't buy a house today for what you paid in 1992. But we are investing in our transportation system like it's 1992. That's CDOT Executive Director Shailen Batt. He favors raising the gas tax. But raising taxes is something Republicans aren't fond of. House Minority Leader Brian Del Grosso. Quite frankly, uh, the, the voters of Colorado still are not very excited about uh, digging deeper into their wallets to, to, to do that. Instead, Republicans want to ask voters to approve $3.5 billion in bonds for highway project funding. But that's been a non-starter for Democrats, who insist the state wouldn't be able to repay the bonds. Representative Max Tyler chairs the House Transportation and Energy Committee. If you don't have a way to pay for it, you know, you shouldn't be going out there and, and trying to bond against money you don't have. That's just plain foolish. 
Democrats prefer a proposal that would make the hospital provider fee program exempt from the Tabor cap. That could free up more than $750 million in the state's budget for the next fiscal year. But Republicans have balked at the proposal. They feel the state's spending priorities are out of whack. And even Hickenlooper acknowledges the freed-up revenues would really only provide short-term funding solutions for roads. To ease some of the problems, the state has turned to public-private partnerships to fund major road projects, like the one recently completed on U.S. 36. But Bat says for those deals, the state still needs money to pay private contractors. CDOT has also added some toll lanes to address congested highways. But those lanes aren't major money makers meant to fill the agency's budget hole. In the meantime, voters could soon get a chance to decide for themselves on a tax increase. Backers of a measure to increase the state's sales tax for road funding are working on ballot language right now. Stedman hopes taxpayers can provide some relief. We're going to have to break out of the mindset of we want government services, we want government to to provide infrastructure, but we don't want to pay for it. As lawmakers try to figure things out, Reggie McGee of Denver tries to stay patient on the roads. He's filling his tank at a Colorado Boulevard gas station after just getting off of Interstate 25. It's just too much traffic congestion. Everywhere you go is traffic backed up. How do you get around? Slow. Take your time. And travel speeds could get even slower without a financial fix for transportation funding. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Hear the first report in his series at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back to talk about the future of selective service. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Pentagon's decision to open up combat jobs to women raises a big question about selective service and a potential draft. Right now, men 18 to 25 must register with the federal government in case they're needed in wartime. But what about women? Congress has to make a choice, says Colorado Congressman Mike Kaufman, a Republican on the House Armed Services Committee. Either we require women to register in selective service and potentially be drafted into the military, forced into the military, or we do away with it altogether. That is to say, get rid of selective service entirely. After all, Kaufman says, there hasn't been a draft since the Vietnam War. He and Congressman Jared Polis, a bolder Democrat, have introduced legislation with other members of the House to abolish the system. Kaufman thinks a volunteer military is a stronger military. As a Marine Corps combat veteran uh, who served in the Army before the Marine Corps, who was in the United States Army when they were transitioning from a draft military, uh, conscripted military, to an all-volunteer force, I never want to go back to having individuals forced to serve in the military that really don't want to be there. And Kaufman says if there was a draft, 75% of the men who've registered for selective service would be ineligible to serve for a variety of reasons. Individuals who are overweight, individuals who uh, don't have a high school diploma, individuals who can't get a high enough score on the Armed Forces Entrance Exam, drug and alcohol issues, uh, altercations with the law. And to get around that, Kaufman says the military would have to lower its standards. Well, for some perspective, I'm joined by Christopher Capizola. He's a history professor at MIT, and he has studied the Selective Service. Christopher, welcome to the program. 
Thanks, Ryan. There's a slogan on the website for the Selective Service System, and it reads like something out of the 1950s. Quote, it's what a man's got to do. It's quick, it's easy, it's the law. Uh, Remind us briefly how Selective Service works, first of all. Well, the Selective Service System that we have now requires uh, every man uh, in the United States, regardless of... uh, citizenship status or anything to register uh, at the post office with the Selective Service System. And it also requires uh, institutions of the federal government to make sure that um, that men who are between 18 and 25 that they provide services to are also registered. This in particular has an impact on American colleges. That's the method of requiring selective service is that you can't, for instance, get government scholarships or government uh, grants uh, for college if you haven't signed up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, the selective service, I understand, was formed in 1917. Why then? Well, it was adopted for the first time during World War I as an effort to mobilize the American army as fast as possible to enter the European war. And then the draft was ended right after the war, uh, in, uh, ended in 1918. Uh, it came back in uh, 1940 on the eve of the Second World War, and with only a brief interruption, uh, remained in place until the all-volunteer force came in in 1973. And there really is this history of selective service kind of waxing and waning over time, isn't there? Uh, yes. It, I mean, the, it has responded to the needs of the, of the military itself, um, as well as the political mood in the country about who should serve and uh, how we should make those decisions. Well, why don't we talk about the idea that selective service should be abolished? Um, the obvious question it raises is, what if things got really bad and you needed a draft? Can you imagine such a scenario in in modern warfare? Well, I think uh, uh, Representative Kaufman is correct that this is not uh, how America generally fights its wars these days. And if you ask people in the Pentagon, uh, they want a smaller, more flexible, more highly skilled, more technically savvy army. Um, And they don't necessarily want every 18-year-old in America for a year. That might be a waste of their time and their energy. That said, uh, there could be a situation um, in, uh, you know, an unfortunate situation in which a large-scale land army uh, is part of our military needs. Um, You could imagine an unfortunate scenario, whether in South Korea, uh, in Russia, uh, some other places in which that might be necessary. And then the question is whether uh, whether the U.S. could respond um, through by developing a force uh, with or without selective service. Right now, selective service is the thing on the books that tells us how we're going to get that army in place within a matter of weeks. Um, If we eliminated selective service, we would need uh, some sort of contingency plan. You mentioned the possibility of some kind of large-scale warfare, and we ran that by Richard Cohn. He's a military historian at the University of North Carolina, and he too says he could envision an engagement with, say, Russia as you mentioned, where a lot of U.S. ground troops would be needed and therefore a draft. So you're pointing to the the question of nimbleness in that case. Uh, But for the kinds of conflicts that we see now, you say that um, the, the military forces need to be smaller and more nimble. And so do the conflicts, do the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, show us that there are enough volunteers to move in these kinds of, of, uh, of wars? I think that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and 
the other military uh, actions that uh, that the U.S. armed forces have taken, sometimes even, for example, in responding to humanitarian crises, have shown that the volunteer system is working. Uh, now, of course, there were challenges during some of the you know sort of toughest periods of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars to uh, to raise enough soldiers, um, but uh, and you saw the institution of you know, some real uh, financial incentives and even some efforts to make sure that people who are already in the forces uh, stayed in. Um, uh, and those were, you know, those were tough measures and tough decisions to make, but I think they were uh, much clearer and fairer than, uh, than adopting a, a wide-scale uh, draft system. But people who favor a draft say it could mean a more economically diverse military, and they even go so far as to say that we might not have entered the recent wars if there had been a draft, you know, because more people have a stake. Uh, others, meanwhile, argue an all-volunteer force results in a more economically diverse group. What does the research say about that? Well, I think the research uh, shows pretty clearly that a draft army would be an economically diverse force if, in fact, it was uh, universally applied. So if you remember back in the Cold War era and through the Vietnam era, there were deferments for college students. The logic behind that was that America was fighting a, you know, a generations-long war against the Soviet Union, and it needed to maintain its economic strength, which meant it needed to maintain its educational uh, power. Um, now, that in practice meant that uh, the people who were drafted in the Vietnam era were those uh, from the, the, the working classes, uh, disproportionately. So if you wanted to have an economically diverse uh, draft army, you would have to eliminate the college deferments. Um, and that would certainly uh, be a, a real difference from the draft we had in the 1970s. There's this notion as well, and it was floated by former Colorado Senator Gary Hart some years ago, of national service, so not necessarily military conscription, but the idea that uh, all young people would serve the country in some capacity. You know, that could be, I don't know, building a road or uh, cleaning up a national park or something. Uh, has that gained any momentum in more recent times? Uh, I think that idea has been around for generations. In fact, it's actually been around for as long as Selective Service itself um, and was, uh, in fact, actually offered by women in 1917 who said, uh, who didn't challenge the combat ban at that time, but did say that they, they should be included in Selective Service in some civilian fashion. Um, and the idea of national service is uh, certainly noble, and we have traditions of that, like the Peace Corps uh, and AmeriCorps and other programs. But I think that to institute that as a sort of uh, universal requirement for all young Americans of, of all genders uh, would probably require uh, economic commitments that, um, that we might not necessarily want to make. It might also um, put a whole bunch of 18-year-olds in positions uh, that they're, where they're not actually doing their best work. Um, some of the jobs that are suggested, social service, child care, elder care, are, are actually skilled jobs that require training and expertise um, and that, you know, 18-year-olds uh, as volunteers have done wonderful work in aiding professionals. Uh, but I don't think we should think that those are positions that 18-year-olds uh, without training uh, should be taking on. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And there is a proposal from two Colorado congressmen, Mike Kaufman and Jared Polis, to get rid of selective service. And we are getting the long view on the draft and selective service right now from Christopher Capazzola, who's a history professor at MIT. 
And uh, let's move to another proposal in Congress. This one does not have any Colorado sponsors, but it essentially would say women should be eligible for selective service now that combat roles are open to them. And the supporters of this avenue say that there is a Supreme Court ruling that says if women are allowed into combat, they ought to be eligible for selective service. Um, Can you shed some light on that? Sure. So in 1980, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, President Carter uh, reinstituted the selective service registration system, merely as registration, not the draft. And it was challenged uh, in the Supreme Court as a form of gender discrimination. Uh, The case was brought by uh, a young man. And in that case, uh, Rostker versus Goldberg in 1981, the Supreme Court uh, said that it was not uh, gender discrimination, but they had a curious logic. It went like this. They said selective service exists to identify combat-ready individuals. And Congress uh, says, and the Pentagon says, that only men uh, will serve in combat. Therefore, when the selective service system registers only men, that's not sex discrimination. It's just bureaucracy. <laughs> now, that's, that was the logic at the time. But, but you can imagine that matters have changed uh, with the combat ban being lifted. Right. With the idea that now that women are eligible for combat, that idea that it's gender discrimination rises again. That's on the minds of some of these members of Congress who would like to change the law. Um, But not everyone feels that way. Recently, Texas Senator and Republican presidential candidate Ted Cruz said this. I don't think we ought to be forcibly drafting women, particularly putting them in a position where they're in combat. I don't think that makes sense. I don't think it's beneficial to the military. If women want to step forward and serve voluntarily, I think that's perfectly appropriate and it's a wonderful thing. I guess it'll be fascinating to see if this plays out in the halls of Congress or in the courts, Christopher. Uh, Yes. And I think that um, it won't just be fascinating. I think it is inevitable. Um, I think that uh, with the lifting of the combat ban, the Supreme Court's logic in Rosker versus Goldberg has effectively been overturned. Uh, Now, we have not yet seen a test case, but uh, all it would take is a single test case, either from an 18-year-old male uh, or from an 18-year-old who's a transgender person who might uh, challenge uh, the law on those grounds. Mm. Uh, and I think that that could generate a Supreme Court ruling that would force uh, force the hands of Congress. Is the question of, of women in combat really the, the triggering event here, or is this a larger question about selective service and the draft in more modern times? I guess it could be both, too. I think uh, the... The lifting of the combat ban was the trigger for an overdue national conversation um, about our military uh, and who serves in it and on what terms. And I think we uh, saw the, the, the impact of uh, 40 years of the all-volunteer force during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And we saw what a committed and a skilled and able uh, armed forces uh, that was. But I think it raised for us some very difficult questions about whether it was the fairest way uh, to raise uh, our armies. Um, And I think that the lifting of the combat ban has raised the fairness question not only around issues of class and race, but also of of gender. Christopher Capizola, he's a history professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Let us know what you think. Should the Selective Service be abolished? And what about women signing up for the draft? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Colorado Matters or connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. 
And speaking of military service, when we come back, Denver's Curious Theater mounts a play about three generations of veterans. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A soldier returns from Iraq and struggles with his memories. So he turns to his father who served in Vietnam. All I could think was, I have to talk to Pops, hear his stories. Did you have nightmares too? Every single night, did you feel guilty when you shot a guy? Things he never really opened up about. You heard there the main character in a play called Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue. It opens Saturday at Denver's Curious Theater Company. Chip Walton is the director, and we are also joined by the actor Tony Mena, who stars as Elliot. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Uh, This show follows three generations of the Ortiz family who live in North Philadelphia. This is a family of soldiers. Elliot earned a Purple Heart in Iraq. We mentioned his dad, who was in Vietnam. And uh, the character Grandpop served in Korea. Chip, how do their experiences connect them and, I I guess, divide them, too? Well, I I think, you know, um, at the heart of this play is is family. Uh, So in addition to obviously having um, an exploration of military service, uh, it also really deals with a single um, family in North Philadelphia uh, that um, involves at its heart a coming-of-age story for Elliot, um, but it also is deeply rooted in the Puerto Rican experience, which um, adds another layer of complexity to it. So uh, there's a lot going on in the play, and the generations – Each, of course, have very different experiences, both inside and outside of the military. And so there's a lot of great um, there's a lot of great conversation and dialogue about about what it means to be a veteran as well as what it means to be a Puerto Rican. And what divides them? Because lots of things that bring families together can have the opposite effect, too. I think one of the things that divides them is is um, the the generational differences in terms of how um, how they identify both uh, a, as military veterans as well as just as individuals. There's a great um, there's a great through line of how uh, particularly grandpa and pop just. W- are not comfortable talking about their military service yeah. and really kind of shut down when it comes to trying to relate um, to their son and his military uh, experience. So so there's a difference there that they really struggle to find common ground, even though, ironically, they've been through very, very similar experiences. And I guess that is a generational difference, Tony, because you've, you've got the more recent veteran who's in a culture where it's more acceptable to talk about what you went through. That's not the case in, in the earlier generations, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the earlier generations, I believe one of our castmates was talking about his experience with his grandfather and his uncle. And they were talking about Vietnam and, and World War II and which one was worse. But it's, it's something that they might be able to talk about with each other. Maybe it's still taboo. But now we're in a luckier generation, I guess, or more aware where uh, people are urging our veterans to to talk about their experiences because it's needed on their own time, of course. But uh, as a society, we're more aware, but there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. That's why I think this show is also important because veterans that come out, yeah, they might be from a younger generation, but they might not have that person or, or that experience where they feel like they can or need to talk about it. And it's very important to hear these stories and to have them relate and then have them hopefully talk about it. Will you expound on the role that 
the 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 Puerto Ricanness plays in 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 this play because this is three generations of a Puerto Rican family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. I mean, personally, anytime that I can portray a Latino on stage, uh, I'm extremely happy. I'm Dominican. I'm not Puerto Rican, but uh, close enough in the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that. I, I yeah, no, no. I'll say I'll say it proud too. Um, but it's it's just a story about a guy who happens to be Puerto Rican, and you get to see his life and his experience and his family. Uh, all all three plays. We're just talking about one right now, but all three plays uh, definitely have that out. And you see that it's a very important aspect of the life when it comes to the food, the music, uh, the way that we talk to each other, the Spanglish that's around, who still speaks Spanish, things like that. Uh, and I just think it's a great glimpse of, of, of this family and also the Puerto Ricanist, but definitely of this family in America. Mm. As you mentioned, uh, Tony, this is actually the first in a trilogy by Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Kiera Alegria Hudes. Uh, Curious will be the first in the country to perform fully produced stagings of all three, and you'll present the next two plays this fall and then next winter. And uh, these are based on Hudez's real-life family. And I understand her cousin, named Elliot, served in Iraq. Uh, Why don't you tell us more about Elliot and what he's dealing with, Tony? Well, Elliot, he is a young man. He was... Uh, he went to war. He signed up when he was 17. Two days after his 18th birthday, the president said, we're going to war. And uh, he was, I guess when he signed up, he was trying to figure out who he was, what he could do with his life. Uh, but there was also the, the the question of legacy. You know, his dad did it and his grandfather did it. You know, he kind of thought that was a thing to do without even really thinking about it. But then he comes back from these experiences and it's kind of like, what now? Why did I do that? Why am I still here? Is this what I want to do with my life? So there's regret. Uh, you could say that. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely there's so many things that he's thinking about when he comes back um, that you get to see that throughout not only the first play, but throughout all three, how big of an impact this choice, this decision was to to join the military, to join the Marines. Um, and you see him. It's really coming of age. You see him come into his own and come into himself and become a man. And he still struggles with with a lot of things throughout all three plays. And he, he comes back a hero. Yeah. I mean, he comes back a hero. Like like I said, he was younger. He was 17, 18. Uh, and when you come back as a hero with mm. a purple heart, there there's a sense of pride and joy and like coming back home and I'm, I'm somebody now. But at the same time, it's like I went through all of these things and am I, am I really a hero? What does that what does that mean? And am I a hero if I go back or if I leave the Marines? Like, it's so many things going on in his head, rightfully so. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about uh, a new production, a series of them actually over the next year or so from Curious Theater in Denver. Uh, This is a trilogy of plays about a Puerto Rican family and their experiences together, their experiences individually in war, uh, the first play is called Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue. It's opening this weekend. And that title is actually a nod to its structure. Um, Hudes, the playwright, is a classically trained pianist with a degree in music composition. And she crafted this play much like a Bach fugue, 
we went to a rehearsal and recorded these layered sounds of Bach music and voices. When I see you, I'ma take what I want, so you try to front, hope you got yourself a gun. You ain't real, hope you got yourself a gun. Uh, Chip, will you explain what's going on there? Um, so that's the first scene in the play, and um, you know when Kiara, who we've worked, we've we've had a long, wonderful relationship with Kiara. When she started writing these plays, um, she really wanted to kind of break out of her wheelhouse, so to speak. And and in order to do so, she used her musical background to find a new structure to approach these plays. Um, this first play, uh, obviously called A Soldier's Fugue, is 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 structured explicitly after um, a Bach fugue. And so and you've rem- got – Remind us what a fugue is. Well, so so a, a fugue is a, um, a particular type of music where you have um, a, lo- a particular musical line that recurs and sometimes echoes. Sometimes it exists um, in contrast to each other. But uh, you're hearing the same line of music in different – uh, registers and different keys and different sort of relationships to each other. And it's so fa- it's fascinating how much the language of music can apply to a play and to the themes in a play. It is. Yeah. And, and, and going back to what we talked about uh, just a mo- moment ago. So you've got these, these, you got these three men who have all had similar military experiences, similar, but different military experiences. Uh-huh. And so how those stories complement and, and contrast each other really is served very, very beautifully by the musical structure of a fugue. I think that for any actor, Tony, there is a desire to be true to the character. There's a desire to be authentic. I imagine there is especially that weight on you when you're talking about conveying the experience of someone who's been to war. And I understand that you worked with a Marine veteran uh, named Jay Knight. He consulted with the cast. Yes, Jay Knight. um incredible human being he came by and uh, he's helping us out with any questions that we have anything that deals with authenticity um like what how do there's a scene where i'm let's say holding a gun i've never held a gun in my life i've never been in the marines in my life but um and if if you hold the gun the wrong way that is something that a veteran will pick up oh yeah and not only that um we, he came to one of our run-throughs, and uh, there's this one scene that gets me every time. And he comes backstage afterwards. He's like, "Man, that was great. You almost got me, but your boot, the way that the pant leg was set up. I mean, very small details. And I know not everybody's going to pick things up like that. But when those military folk come to see the show, I would love to be as authentic as possible because I am portraying their experience and." I am not a Marine at all, and I don't want to disrespect them in any way, shape, or form. I want to tell their story the best way possible. But that sounds like a lot to remember as an actor. So it's not just a question of your lines. It's not just a question of blocking and, you know, your uniform, but how the uniform is positioned and the specific kinds of of stance in the blocking. Um, Does that get overwhelming? Um, No, I mean, not so much. It's just a part of... What we do, yeah, it's a lot to remember. And at first, I guess I 
I am nervous because I, I want to, like I said, portray them the right way. But uh, it's just it's something that, that we have to do, be it that uh, each time that we do it, I remember it a little bit more or I try something different and Jay might be like, no, nah, that won't work out. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, not authentic. That's not authentic, but it's just something that we do. In just a few seconds, uh, Chip, this is really serial storytelling. I mean, given that you're going to be producing this trilogy over the next year or so, what interests you about that? Well, you know, the thing about it is that I, I think our audience viewing habits uh, in our contemporary culture right now have changed. And I think, you know, doing um, a single play uh, by uh, uh, is still an interesting experience. But to, to have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with characters, with writers, with stories, um, I think we're looking at extending the viewer experience. Chip Walton, producing artistic director at Curious Theatre Company in Denver, and Tony Mina, who stars in Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue, the play opens Saturday. That's March 12th. This is Colorado Matters. <laughs>